It seemed now as if, touched by human penitence and all its toil, divine goodness had parted the curtain and displayed behind it, single, distinct, the hair erect, the wave falling, the boat rocking, which, did we deserve them, should be ours always. But alas, divine goodness twitching the cord draws the curtain. It does not please him. He covers his treasures in a drench of hail and so breaks them, so confuses them that it seems impossible that their calm should ever return or that we should ever compose from their fragments a perfect whole or read in the littered pieces the clear words of truth. For our penitence deserves a glimpse only, our toil respite only. Welcome to Raise a Glass, the podcast where we talk about the stories and storytellers that shaped us. My name is Eric Lintela, and I am Hunter Danson. You might recognize Hunter's voice as the reader of the quote. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if this is your first time listening to us uh, here on season two of Raise a Glass. Season two. Woo. Double the raising, double the... Yeah, glass. <laughs> we're both we're both wearing glasses, so maybe <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyways, so <laughs> as is uh, tradition here at Raise a Glass, before we dive into the story or storyteller that we'll be talking about, um, Hunter, I've got to know what's in your glass. I have some fresh Four Roses Kentucky Straight Bourbon. This is the first pour. Mm. Um, Virginia Woolf, who we're going to be talking about in this episode, I often compare to scotch. Um, this isn't scotch, but, you know, it's whiskey because um, uh, Virginia Woolf is strong. She's, uh, you, you can't take too much at one time. You got to savor mm. it. That's how I approach reading her anyway. Um so four roses, bourbon. What about you, Eric? I got it. If that's a first pour, what is it like? Mm. Ooh, that's good whiskey. I wish yeah. all of you could have seen the. Oh yeah, wiping the mustache it's afterwards. Like the, it makes me smell the like the old wood. Of, mm. uh, of an old boat. That makes sense. I mean, you're wearing the flannel. You've got a full Nick Offerman guy vibe going on over here. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Hunter has an incredible ability to grow facial hair. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of Ryan Fitzpatrick a little bit, um, former <laughs> football quarterback. Um, but it's been a, a couple weeks since I've seen you, and I feel like you have twice as much hair on your face and head. I guess so, yeah. Um my secret is that um, I just don't really shave because I don't like to. So. <laughs> I guess once you get past that but, awkward, itchy stage, yeah. then it's fine. And I have to thank my dad for passing on the, uh, the beard. 
growing ability. Yeah, I thank my dad for not passing that on, um, <laughs> or I maybe I call him out on it. I don't know. Um, but for me, in my glass, um, sadly, I didn't put this in in China, which I feel like would have been very appropriate to this book. Hmm. Um, but I um, am drinking out of uh, a newly bestowed Christmas gift, which, as I look at it, actually has four roses on it. Nope, five. Ooh. Oh yeah. None of that. Four, six, six roses. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it, uh, one and a half times as cool as your bourbon. Um, that only has four. Uh, I'm drinking, uh, black chai. Um, nice. For sip of that, uh, out of this really, really hot, uh, it's gonna be a very small sip. It's hot. I don't want to yeah, drink that much. One, one sip at a time. Then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. proudly to say, uh, Rochester is on here. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the college named after the founding father without a father, uh, the the town where that resides is not, in fact, on this map. Uh, Nor, in fact, is the town that bears said founding father without a father's name. Pretty small towns. Yeah, that's true. Um, so quick, quick note on that, actually, before we dive into what we're raising a glass and pouring one out for. Um, Hunter, did you know that yesterday was the birthday of said founding father without a father? Oh, I should be shamed. I knew it a couple weeks ago when I got the email. <laughs> and then I forgot about it. <laughs> I, got a, I got a text yesterday with the donation request. So oh, that's, right. that's how I know. Yeah. Um, whoops. Um, I did not give a tenor. Um, with that said, Hunter, <laughs> what are you raising a glass and pouring one out for today? Uh, it's always hard to decide. Uh, I just feel <laughs> like there are many things to pour one out for every week. <laughs> oh, um, our personalities are so different. I think the exact opposite. I'm like, what do I, what do I have to pour something out for? There's so many things to raise a glass to. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm raising a glass to Dawen, which is, he's a a Chinese uh, music artist. And I first, first discovered him in China through his cover of tell me why by the backstreet boys uh, in, in Mandarin. So I have, it, it is a genuinely awesome cover. You should go listen to it. There's like a couple different vocalists and they do a can great you put, job. Can you put a link to it in the show notes? I will, yes. Um, and he's got some original stuff too that I've been um, perusing. Perusing. Yeah. And uh, I'm, what am I pouring one out for? Oh, I, I know. I'm pouring one out for consumerism. Mm. Uh, coming after the, the holiday season. Um, just how quickly my mind, when it wants to solve a problem, thinks, I should buy this in order to solve this problem. 
Yeah. Even if it's a problem like, oh, I need to have less clutter in my house. Let me buy some kind of organizer or shelf to, uh, you know, deal with all of the stuff um, that I've bought and been marketed. And um, <laughs> How we define the problem defines our solution. Yeah. Yeah. So consumerism, I'm uh, trying to fight it in my, my personal life. I got to figure that out before I try and do anything more. But um, what are you raising a glass or pour one out for? Yeah, I'm going to start the opposite way around. I am pouring one out for um, I don't know the right way. Bland sausage. Uh, have you ever eaten like <laughs> sausage that just like tastes bad and like makes your stomach like queasy? Yeah, uh, I, I'm not. I had some of that today. Um, mm. There were only a few pieces of it on this piece of pizza, and the pizza was delicious, but the sausage was just not supreme. Um, that was a joke because it was a supreme pizza. Um, and I feel like I've run into that problem not regularly, but with pizza places more often than others. Like I like sausage, but I don't like. That's there's a there's a sausage place there nope there's a pizza place in Chicago um, that is continually in the top two or three pizza places and when I ate there I just there's the 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 sausage pizza is kind of like one of the things they're known for and it just was not yeah my stomach's feeling like a little off even as I talk about it so mm. that's what I'm pouring one out for um, clearly not that important of a thing. But I am raising a glass today to the power of prayer. Hmm. And the reason I'm raising a glass today is we were recording this 10 days after um, Damar Hamlin, a Buffalo Bills safety, um, was uh, died on the football field during a Monday night football game. Um, He hit a receiver and fell to the ground. His heart stopped. Um, And he was resuscitated on the field. Um, brought to um, a medical facility uh, in Cincinnati and like breathing to comatose or um, there was hearing from medical professionals like there was not the expectation that he would live let alone if he gained consciousness be able to have all of his cognitive ability (laughs) let alone mm-hmm. be able to move, let alone like, you know, be able to play football again. Right. And um, I was very emotional all of last week, um, praying and thinking. And, and there was people throughout the entire world, I mean, millions of people praying for Damar Hamlin. Um, and... Earlier this week, he was, well, on, on what, I think it was Wednesday, he woke up. He was able to communicate through writing. He was then released from the ICU and brought from Cincinnati to Buffalo this week. And yesterday, he was released from the hospital in Buffalo. Wow. Or, or was it, it was before then, maybe even. like In like less than 10 days, this man went from dying in front of millions of viewers 
to walking out of the hospital. Hmm. And I don't see, I don't understand any other way that that could have happened outside of prayer. And like, yes, medical, obviously I'm not going to, I don't think God and science are opposites. Uh, I think we've talked about that and I I will never make that argument. Um, And it also like just flaunts in the face of all, like of what make, of what should have happened or could have happened. And I think if there had been less people praying and less prayers that I don't think he would be alive and walking. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I just, that means so much to me and, and we can maybe in a future episode talk about sports and talk about <laughs> football and, you know, whether that should be a sport that continues and all these things. Um, but I've just been moved to tears multiple times by the power of prayer, uh, especially in the last week and a half. And what an incredible thing in a country that has continued continually moved further and further away from organized religion, um, from faith, many would argue, even from spirituality <laughs> at times, um, for the world and like the NFL community to be gathered together in prayer because there's a realization that when we can't do anything, we can still pray. Um, and other people will say they can hope. Um, but in my view, hope is passive, and I think prayer is active because I believe God responds to it. So that's what I'm raising glass to. Uh, just been amazed by what's happened this past uh, couple weeks. All right. So, Hunter, you have brought the book to us today. Um, would you like to... Share a little bit about it, yeah, um, and maybe a little bit of a, a summary of of w- what it is and and why you brought it. Yeah, so I brought uh, "To the Lighthouse" by Virginia Woolf. Uh, it was published in 1927, um, and this is a book that I read for love because it was my wife's uh, favorite book at the time that we were dating. Um, <clears throat> so I, I, I read it. Um, didn't really give it a proper read until after college, actually. But um, Virginia Woolf is, like I said, she is a strong, like a strong scotch or a whiskey, something that you can't, you you have to take it seriously. Um, and that sounds incredibly pretentious. And I'm aware of that, that sort of idea of literature and um, the, the kind of pretension that some people have about it. But uh, Virginia Woolf is, <laughs> is worth it, in my opinion. She is one of the uh, I believe one of the greatest writers of the English language. She weaves metaphors um, throughout her writing, uh, and it's hard reading. Uh, you can't you can't really read it fast. Mm. Um, yeah, That's true. <laughs> it it you have to take your time. And even for someone who has read a lot, 
uh, and and even for someone who has, you know, tried to write, uh, for me, it's it's challenging reading. I have to sometimes flip back a few pages, you know, because you have to follow the thread. Um, but it is really rewarding reading because if you follow her, she will take you deeper into her characters, into the human soul than almost anyone that I have ever read. Um, and mm. she has some of the most beautiful language in English that I have ever read. Um, you know, that excerpt at the beginning was one example. Um, and Virginia Woolf also, um, if you're still kind of put off of the, the literature vibe, um, she, <laughs> she, I think is, is popular, uh, now as like a woman's writer because, you know, she was writing a long time ago and she was a woman and while she was published and while she did become fairly well known, um, for her work, she never received a formal education, uh, like a, a I mean, <laughs> like a secondary education. She didn't go to college. All of her brothers did, but her family did not send her to college. Um, so she, mm. I think, you know, is, is primarily kind of like a self-taught writer and reader. Um, and I think it lends her writing. She has a real fierceness um, and if you read some of her criticism, she does a lot of, uh, she has some really great essays. She has a great one about, um, Russian writers. Um, okay. and I'll send you that one because I think you'll enjoy it. Um, yeah. her, and she has another one that I'm also going to reference about, uh, how one should read a book. Yes. We need to talk about that. <clears throat> yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And, um, she writes beautifully and you know as as a writer like virginia wolf is a huge inspiration for me um not that i come quite close to <laughs> to her skill but um and you shouldn't just, take that personally it's... yeah <laughs> just what she does with with english and what she is able to achieve um is is it, it you're you're not going to find anything like this anywhere else. And that's why I think you should read it. But, uh, so what I'm, is this? What is, what, what is to the lighthouse? <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm so, uh, so <laughs> I'm trying to be such an apologist here. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to take a sip of whiskey and, um, <laughs> To the Lighthouse is a unfolding story of uh, a family's lives, the Ramses, and the people that wash up around the Ramses and the people that gather around them. Um, there's Lily Briscoe, who is, uh, she paints, and there's Charles Tansley, who's kind of a poor um man bringing himself up by the bootstraps to go to college. Uh, Mr. Ramsey himself is a philosopher and he has eight children. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're, they're not a rich family. Um, but Mrs. Ramsey is kind of like the, you know, the light in this family. She, uh, 
illuminates everybody. And Virginia Woolf goes really deep into her characters, um, psyches, and and much of the book is their thoughts and their mm-hmm. impressions and their experience. It's not really a plot. The only plot is really at some point they're going to take a boat to the lighthouse. Um, Which you're not actually sure if that's going to happen throughout most yeah. of this book. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not something that you read for for the plot. It's more the experience of these characters' lives and the way that Virginia Woolf represents it in her prose. Okay. If I could add just uh, an addition, small addition to it. Um, most two-thirds of this book happens over the course of one day. Right. Yeah. And then, well, more than two-thirds probably. <laughs> And then yeah. the last third happens over the course of a few days, years later. Yeah. Uh, a few, well, a few days and then one day, years later. Yeah. S- someone will say something and then there'll be, you know, two or three paragraphs of how those words made the character feel and how... Um, other people feel about it and and what's going on in their souls. If you're Um, ever looking to read a book that is third person omniscient, this is the book for you. (laughs) You get almost every single character's views on almost every single thing at almost every single moment. Yeah. And to, I, to the lighthouses is a book that is difficult to describe in an attractive way because <laughs> the the way Sorry. that, especially because of the way that we think about reading now, um, you know, the biggest books that are sold today are that sell the most are thrillers, uh, you know, usually plot driven, like young adult fiction, um, mm-hmm. romance novels, fantasy to a certain extent. They're, they're all, mostly plot driven and that's mm-hmm. the way that we kind of think about it but writing can do so much more than that and be mm. so much do different things um and this is something that is very different um yeah than, it's than full what, of conflict and yet it is full of conflict diverse characters yeah or um, well, minus a couple so i'm curious to know eric uh what was your experience reading this book? How do you feel about To the Lighthouse? Let me start by saying that we were going to discuss this book in the first season of this podcast, but my attempts to procure a copy, a written copy of this book, um, were thwarted um, and slowed down. And so it is now the first of this second season. And I think it's an appropriate start to the first to the second season of this podcast because it it is very unlike anything we talked about in the first season. Um, it is similar in that it is by an incredible author. And I, I... The entire time I read this book, I knew I was reading a brilliant work of literature. Hmm. I never had a doubt in my mind. I did not enjoy reading this book, 
until almost the very end of it. Hmm. Had you not said we are talking about this on this podcast, I would not have finished this book. <laughs> that would have probably that would have been to my loss. Because it is I would say the last fifth of this book that gives meaning to the majority of it. And that was my experience of it. I felt like there was a moment, which I will talk about a little bit later. I don't want to spoil that moment yet, but I will spoil mm-hmm. it in this, in this episode. We are not a spoiler free podcast. Let's just clear that out. Uh, yeah. And it, it's not really a book that uh, suffers from, from being spoiled either. I was wondering if, if what would you think about that? Okay. Um, I am glad I read it. I, It did feel like I was, I had, it felt like I was trotting, Hmm. not trotting, trotting. Um, It's kind of a, like, yes, this book, you can't go through this book fast, but you also can't give yourself a ton of, it it, it also lends itself to be read in one one sitting, Mm -hmm. which is a challenge because it's just around 200 pages and it's not, light reading which makes it hard to read like in one sitting and yet because of the way that everything connects to everything else if you take too much time to read it i think if like there's too much time between your readings then you will have forgotten something mm-hmm. that prevents you from what you had said earlier hunter of if if you take the time to you know follow <laughs> uh virginia wolf then it, she'll lead you somewhere you've never like a, to a depth of of characters that you've never been to before like that requires a steadiness of reading it yeah it's it is a book that is um woven and I uh, found myself, I was going through the book again. This is my second read, um, you know, and I was, I was trying to go slow and take notes and stuff. Um, and I ended up like wanting to write an essay about it because, because <laughs> um, I was noticing more of, because I was taking notes and things, I was noticing, um, you know, the recurring metaphors and uh, motifs that Virginia Woolf uses. Mm. And um, well, I, there's two places we could go. Um, <laughs> because one thing that's on my mind is, you know, it, it's just under 200 pages. But something I've been thinking about over break is um, the Wheel of Time, actually. Because uh, mm. one of my friends mentioned that he was, he said he's not that far into it. He said, I'm not that far into it. I'm only on book six. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, on our last podcast, I mentioned something about the dark one being the bad guy. 
uh, and and you're like, oh, he's he's really not the bad guy. And I'm like, you know, Eric, I've read three six hundred page books. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I'm just curious what what you think about how how we um, experience the length of a book, like how long a book feels. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I was describing Brandon Sanderson, who finished Wheel of Time, um, but didn't start it. And so I'm going to talk about Brandon Sanderson, not Robert Jordan, because I love Robert Jordan way more. Um, I like Brandon Sanderson a lot. Um, reading Brandon Sanderson, Miss Bourne, um, Stormlight Archives, one of his many other books, is like eating candy. I think, um, or eating some type of like delicious, not necessarily unhealthy, but probably not that healthy meal. I use Doritos as a metaphor all the time. Okay. Yeah. Like you eat one, you eat the entire bag. Yeah. And then you might have a little bit of a stomach ache, but it's, you know, eventually you're going to go to the next bag of Doritos and you're going to eat the whole thing as fast as you can. Like it will consume you. Mm. Um, and, and to a certain extent, the first time I read wheel of time, it took me four or five years, but each book took me two or three weeks <laughs> to read or less because <laughs> I'd start and I'd finish like, and, and those, these are eight, 600, 800 pages books. These are not like, and so, and Virginia Wolf is like eating a seven course meal where if you're not if you don't have the time to start the if you don't have the time to finish the meal you shouldn't start the meal because hmm. you're still going to be hungry after the second course and you know it's going to take another f- three or four hours even though you can see the food waiting for you yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I don't have anything to add to that. But well, I feel like that that's was a good segue. way better metaphor that I could yeah. get. <laughs> that's a good segue to uh the dinner in to the lighthouse. Mm. Um which comes on uh page eighty two in my edition. Let's see if we have the same edition. It becomes on that page of mine as well. Oh, nice. Or at least at that point, they are eating dinner. Yeah, it's it's chapter um, 17. Seven. Chapter 17 is when they finally sit down to dinner. Do we have the same edition? It's a different uh, cover. You're holding up the back. I'm holding up the front. <laughs> ah. Yeah. I like yours a lot better than mine. Yeah, this one's better. It still so doesn't much really... Captured though. I feel like I'd want to see Lily Briscoe's painting as the cover. Sure, yeah. That to me would be the most beautiful cover. Have that little bit of purple. Yeah. Represents Mrs. Ramsey and James. Right, yeah. Um So Hunter, we we've we've described that this is not a book like that's plot driven. Um and so I apologize for the question that I'm asked, because I'm sure that the question I'm asked is mired in views. Uh, of plot-driven books. 
would you consider the dinner scene the climax of the story? Um, yeah. Follow-up question. When you were reading it for the first time, did you see it as the climax? Or was it only retrospectively that you realized it was the climax? Um, the first time I, I realized it after, as soon as I got to part two, which is called time passes. Okay. For me, that was the same. Yeah. I was like, I would not have pegged this to be the climax of the book. And I did not while I was reading it. And I actually didn't even think about it until you brought it up. And I was like, Oh, the dinner is probably the climax of this book. Yeah. So the dinner, the second time around, I, I really tried to give it a much more intentional read. Um, and it, and this is what I mean about, about Virginia Woolf being really rewarding. Um, because she goes so deep into all of her characters in the beginning. Mm. Um, introducing yeah. them. You're like living in this character's mind with all yeah. of the messiness that comes from the human experience. And, and, but what's great about Virginia Woolf is that she takes that kind of um, zaniness and uncertainty that, like, uh, you know, we have really strange thoughts sometimes and we're beset with mm-hmm. all kinds of um, weird emotions and ups and downs. And she takes all of that and distills it into something that has clarity and that you can view and that's that, but still takes you in and you have been going so deep into these characters that the second, when I read this around the second time and coming to the dinner, it felt like to me, like, uh, the fellowship coming back to Elrond's last homely Mm -hmm. house after a long, hard journey, you have all these characters coming together for a meal and it, and, and this was over, you know, in the book, it's, it's only over the course of one day, but because you are experiencing these characters so deeply, um, it has that quality of, you know, when they come together at the end of the day of this, uh, kind of epic journey that you've been on with these characters and they come to the dinner. Um, and it's it's glorious. There's beef on dobe, and um, there's talks about politics, and um, two of the characters just got engaged. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and there's a beautiful fruit centerpiece. Yes. Actually, it made me really like want to see it and eat it. <laughs> Purples and yellows and yeah. Um, the the pear shapes. Um, Next to spheres of of grapes and the shell and uh, Hunter, I uh, you've been raving over this. I would like to just share a particular. There's a, a couple moments in the dinner scene that stuck out to me. Mm. Um, I'm I'm just going to share one uh, now because I'm excited to talk about it. Um, not because it's probably what I should jump into first, um, but. Let it be said that there is a, this is me speaking, not quoting anything yet. Uh, let it be said, that's how I speak in case you're wondering. Uh, <clears throat> and I say yet again, let it be said that in this, 
There's a character named uh, Mr. Tansley, Charles Tansley. Oh, right? yes. Um, Hunter Tansley. talked about him a little bit. Um, he did not give him nearly as much discredit as he should have. Um, Charles Tansley is a very dislikable character. Uh, he is working on his dissertation, um, and he is very self-centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is... Insecure. Yeah. Uh, and he says mean things, even when he knows he shouldn't. Um, and also when he doesn't know that he shouldn't. Um, except every so often, he just realizes um, the, the beauty of Mrs. Ramsey, which is just an aspect of her character. Um, she is objectively um, one of the most beautiful people that anybody in this book has ever met. Um, Mm -hmm. And yet that does not define her. Like that is not the, it's not just because of what she looks like. Um, Yeah. She's in her fifties. There comes a point in the meal where Charles Tansley was being all Tansley and uh, Mrs. Ramsey. um, No, actually this is Lily. Yeah. Lily um, uh, looks at him. And internally, she thinks everything about him had that meager fixity, the bare, that bare unloveliness. But nevertheless, the fact remained, it was almost impossible to dislike anyone if one looked at them. She liked his eyes. They were blue, deep set, frightening. Hmm. This to me is just a beautiful moment of the way in which Virginia Woolf is able to take reality and pour it into fiction Mm. and distill it. Um, Because while I knew I was reading fiction, it felt like a day at a cottage. Like it didn't feel like a work of fiction. Yeah. Um, And this scene, this, this, this three lines stuck out to me specifically because um, in my job, um, one aspect of it, every so often I get to meet a family of refugees who are arriving in the United States for the first time, hmm. and I get to help welcome them to the United States. And I had a moment the, with a family where I was welcoming them at like 1 a.m. Uh, at the airport. Of course, flights got delayed. I don't know how many hours they were in the air. Um, they had three kids with them. Mm. and they're coming down the stairs in a country they've never been in a city they've never heard of um, in a in an area where they can't speak the language and um, there's a lot of views towards this particular grouping of people um, that are negative in our country um, full of distrust mm. And I got to be there on the ground and I, and I had felt like I'd worked through any of those types of feelings I had. And I like to think of myself as a very welcoming person. Um, and I realized I still had some of those at that moment. And then I saw this family and in particular, I saw the father and he had these piercing eyes. Hmm. It's like, if you see, have you met anybody Hunter that has just like some of the like, emo- like emotive eyes that you just like feel like you can see and understand everything just by looking at them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is one of those people. Uh, and in his eyes, 
I saw fear and excitement and exhaustion, and worry and joy and hope, mm. like all of the complexities of life distilled in his eyes. And I am absolutely convinced, and I pray that this is something that's true of me until the day I die, that if anybody, and I mean anybody, think of the most whatever person <laughs> you want, if anybody was standing in my shoes at that particular moment, looking into the eyes of this man as he's carrying this 50-pound bag on his back mm. um, while his kids had nothing on theirs. Um, and his wife was carrying their youngest. I'm absolutely convinced that any f worry, fear, hatred, bigotry, ism of any kind that anybody held would have melted away. That's what happened for me. I was like, and I'm so, I so believe that the, the view in that moment for any person would have been, how can I welcome and love this person in front of me? Hmm. And that's what this moment does for me. Yeah. Everything about him had that meager fixity, that bare unloveliness. But nevertheless, the fact remained, it was almost impossible to dislike anyone if one looked at them. She liked his eyes. They were blue, deep set, frightening. Hmm. Yeah. And uh, Charles Tansley is the one who's always telling Lily Briscoe that women can't paint and can't write. Uh, even as Lily is uh, trying to paint. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and succeeding. I and think succeeding. she's probably a very good painter. Yeah, um, that's something I want to uh, talk about, actually. Um, I actually did end up writing an essay, um, and I based it on this phrase that I noticed when I was reading, where um, the first time that I think I, f I could find it was in page 84, <clears throat> where... It's right around the, the one that you just shared. Uh, it's, okay. it's during dinner. And, well, actually, she was looking at William Banks. And William Banks uh, is kind of, he's a widower. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lily says, he is not in the least pitiable. He has his work, Lily said to herself. And then she remembered all of a sudden as if she had found a treasure that she had her work. In a mm. flash, she saw her picture and thought, yes, I shall put the tree further in the middle. Yes. Then I shall avoid that awkward space. That's what I shall do. That's what has been puzzling me. She took up the salt cellar and put it down again on a flower and pattern in the tablecloth so as to remind herself to move the tree. And then... Um, moving the tree to the middle is mentioned again on page 86. Um, yeah, she shares that a few times. And then on, again on page 102, where Lily um, sees a pattern on the salt cellar. And it's, it's in this moment of like um, kind of social pressure because she feels this pressure from Mrs. Ramsey that, that Mrs. Ramsey wants her and William Banks to get married. Um, mm -hmm. and 
she sees she catches sight of the salt cellar uh, on the table and she remembers her picture um, because she remembers she's in, and she says, uh, for at any rate, she said to herself, catching sight of the salt cellar on the pattern, she need not marry. Thank heaven. She need not undergo the degradation. She was saved from that dilution. She would move the tree rather more to the middle. Yeah. <laughs> and and I don't think this is a comment on marriage. This is um, because, I mean, Virginia Woolf herself um, did get married. And I guess you could read it in that way. But I think in this moment for Lily, it's kind of like she doesn't, It's it's not like she doesn't like William Banks. It's just not like she just feels this pressure to marry him and she's not particularly happy about it. Did you bring page 209 into your essay? The last paragraph of this book? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, uh, more subtly, but um, yeah, I did. Because that's how it ends. Uh, yeah. With a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second, she drew a line there in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue. I have had my vision. Yeah. Sorry if I jumped ahead. No, it's okay. Um, there's another mention on, on page 147 and moving the tree to the middle. But this is an example of like the way that Virginia Woolf weaves uh, metaphors. And uh, I believe this is a technically an idiom, right? Something that has two meanings phrase that has two mm. meanings is yes, an idiom. Yes. Yeah, so this is an idiom. But she does it with metaphors and um with with just words. Uh and it is so subtle the way that she does it and so well done. Um and I I I, I feel like Lily is the main character. I mean, she's the one painting and painting the vision. This is another question for you. Do you feel like, did you feel like that when you first read this book or was it only retroactively? No, I, I did. Retrospectively. Um, really? Yeah. When See, I, for- when I first read this book, I sent you my Goodreads review from like okay. 2000 and, and, 19 2017 or something like that um where i identified with um i identified lily with um virginia wolf and where she says uh at the end there it was her picture yes with all its greens and blues its lines running up and across its attempt at something it would be hung in the attics she thought it would be destroyed but what did that matter? She asked herself. I was got to be honest. I was really sad that she didn't then add it would be rolled up and put under her couch <laughs> because that's what she says multiple other times. And I was just right. really hoping that. <laughs> yeah. But I felt at the end when she says, I have had my vision that that was also Virginia Woolf saying, mm. I have had my vision about to the lighthouse yeah. because that's what it felt like to me. It was like a vision. So, so it took me until like the very last, what, 
40, 30, 20, 40 pages that it's like, oh, I think this, I think Lily's the primary character. Uh, yeah. I don't think I got, I thought that in the first part of this book. Mm. Um, yes. I, you wrote, uh, please tell, talk more about your essay before I'm going to derail us <laughs> and talk more about the dinner. Um, I don't want to say too much about it. Uh, I mean, you, I'll put it in the show notes so you can go read it. Um, it, it came out of just my love for Virginia Woolf and what she means to me um, as a writer. And I also reading a essay that she wrote um, Yes, let's talk about that. Yeah. So I, I sent this to you. Um, did you have a chance read, to, to browse it? I or? read the quotes you shared with me. Yeah. And actually, I would like to say that part of the reason I chose not to read your essay or your Goodreads, which you've also both sent to me, was due to the first major quote you said to me. <laughs> okay. Do you understand why? Um. I let me see the what was the first quote I sent. <laughs> yeah, but how we may ask, are we to decide any of these questions about the book? Is it good? Is it bad? How good is it? How bad is it? Not much help can be looked for from outside. Critics abound. Criticisms pollulate. But minds differ too much to admit of close correspondence and matters of detail. And nothing is more disastrous than to crush one's own foot into another person's shoe. Mm-hmm. I could just keep reading it. You'll have to stop me. I mean, the the first the, one of the major pieces of this this why well, I took it as one of the major parts of these quotes, or at least the first one, was that you should spend your time figuring out what you think about a thing mm-hmm. and about a book. And in your own thoughts, and then compare them, compare that to the thoughts of different thinkers and different other critics, so that you can combat them and aren't shaped by them. Um, because this was a, a really cool thing. It's, and then she shares there there they hang in the wardrobe of our mind these books mm. the shapes of the books we have read as we hung them up and put them away when we have when we had done with them if we have just read clarissa harlow for example let us see how it shapes it shows up against the shape of anna karenina at once the outlines of the two books are cut out against each other as a house with its chimneys bristling and its glo- Gable sloping is cut out against a harvest moon. Right, this idea that mm. we also experience books at different points of our lives and they have different shapes for each of us. Yeah. And if we like something that doesn't to be said that it is likable or that it's dislikable. Yeah. Um, that's where the quote about sticking um, your cramming your foot into somebody else's shoe. Yeah. I think that's uh kind of what we're all about <laughs> mm-hmm. on the podcast is 
not putting our feet in other people's shoes. Uh, Unless it has to do with Ernest Klein. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> but So then, to sum up the different points we have reached in this essay, have we found any answer to our question, how we should read a book? How should we read a book? Clearly, no answer that will do for everyone, but perhaps a few suggestions. Mm. Yeah. And um, the, the essay, her essay ends with um, a... Because she's tr- part of it is she's trying to find a reason for reading. Uh, you know, why why do we love reading? Um, and and why you know what kinds of books do we want to read? And and um, I I really liked what she was what she said about like reading nonfiction. Um, in that like it's something different than reading fiction, because I think living in the digital age we talk about reading as if it's all one um Mm. but you know it does matter what you read uh (laughs) in my opinion um because what stories you experience yeah and how you experience them right um and you know she talks about how like non-fiction reading non-fiction can be good for the for the creative mind to kind of uh like fall down uh, to kind of gather together all of these facts and um, things and nonfiction can kind of um, sate the, the, the appetite for, uh, um, for writing fiction, like reading fiction makes you want to write reading nonfiction makes you want to write fiction mm. um, to kind of try and make sense of it all or make something of it. Uh, the, the many facts and things and, um, Maybe today, I think we don't. Well, we we watch a lot of fiction. Um, I don't know, but I'm thinking about poetry as you're talking about all this, right? And about the 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 loss of poetry, mm. and the, we don't. The, people don't read poetry. Yeah. I I think they they do. It's just not very lucrative to release a book of poetry. I think that people read poetry in moments of pain, grief, hmm. meaninglessness, and an inability to understand the world. And I think that Virginia Woolf touches on this. Mr. Carmichael brought out a volume of poems that spring, which had an unexpected success. The war, people said, had revived their interest in poetry. Page 134. I, I honestly think that there's some type of a- aspect of crises and um, the existential and yeah. questions of vanity mm-hmm. that bring us to the answers and to the sages, to the poets of this world. Yeah. Oh, I have a great. Are you going to read the Laurel Lay piece? 
No, no uh, she does quote some things, some poetry. Uh, mm. uh, Mr. Ramsey is always quoting poetry, but I beneath a rougher sea. Yeah, so that's in this in the in the later. That's one of those idioms or one of those pieces for the, the last third of this book. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunter, we we um, have never officially finished our conversation about the dinner. Um, yeah, I wanted to throw out a a funny piece. Um, in this book, yeah, uh, during the dinner se- scene, um, one of the things I love is cooking, and I love food. Mm-hmm. So page 100 to 101. It is French. It is a French recipe of my grandmother, said Mrs. Ramsey, talking about the dinner. Speaking with a ring of great pleasure in her voice, of course it was French. What passes for cookery in England is an abomination. (laughs) They agreed. It is putting cabbages in water. It is roasting meat till it is like leather. It is cutting off the delicious skins of vegetables, in which, said Mr. Banks, all the virtues of the vegetable is contained. And the waste, said Mrs. Ramsey, a whole French family could live on what an English cook throws away. And then it continues on for another paragraph or so. So talking about the skins of vegetables. Yeah. There's also the... Uh, <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. The, in the, the blessed island of good boots. Because uh, mm. Lily mm-hmm. is having a very awkward moment with Mr. Oh. Ramsey. Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about that moment. Um, just the, the last thing about the dinner, uh, oh. is what comes after the dinner. <laughs> oh, can we, yes, but there is a moment where it's, it's Paul marries Minta, mm-hmm. um, right in the last frame of the dinner that I think is Mrs. Ramsey's from Mrs. Ramsey's viewpoint uh, with Minta. It was necessary now to carry everything a step farther, further with her foot on the threshold as she waited a moment longer in a scene, which was vanishing even as she looked. And then as she moved and took Minta's arm and left the room, it changed. It shaped itself differently. It had become, she knew, giving one last look at it over her shoulder. Already the past. Hmm. I don't think I understood the meaning of that line. I don't think one could understand that in a first read. Until... what you're about to share until uh time passes until time passes um so this is a it's a short part but this is the i don't know if the right term is the denouement um of the climax the coming down right um but it's labeled time passes and time passes. The, the narrator is fully omniscient and poetic. And it gives 
kind of a meaning, trying to trying to piece together the the just the meaning of these people's lives. Um, you know, years and years pass, decades pass in, you know, uh just a few pages. And in in this part the world's you know shakes itself down to sleep the the lighthouse but the lighthouse is always revolving and kind of illuminating the house through the years and um if the dinner is a a climax of all of these characters coming together time passes is is what happens when they all go their own ways. Um, and the effect that coming together at the Ramses has on them. You, you find out what happens to Paul and Minta later on. Um, the, the probably the, so yeah. Can, can we just share a couple logistical pieces? Yeah. Um, when they all come together, they live in London most of the year. Mm-hmm. They then come to their cottage on the, in the summers. And the cottage is on the Isle of Skye, I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. um, which is in Scotland. At least that's what I remember it saying. Um, and if it's not there, it's somewhere very remote. And it doesn't say specifically. Um, okay. There is, I think... For whatever reason, in my mind, I associate it with the Isle of Skye. Who knows why? But when they leave, and I think it's ultimately 10 years pass. I was trying to do the math. Um, by the, till the end of the book. Um, they're, they're not at the cottage. So the things that are happening are happening yeah. Outside the cottage. And that, those, that's the logistical piece I wanted to say. I apologize for interrupting. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I could see how that would be confusing. Um, and so but by the end of Time Passes, and I guess this is the only spoiler, um, it, it's not really that big of a – well, it won't ruin your experience of the book. I, I didn't remember it. Uh, coming around the second time, but I will say if you if you feel like you want to read this book, then uh, go ahead and turn off the podcast and and go read it. But uh, Mrs. Ramsey dies. Not that it's not just that, but okay, we're talking about this being a book that you have to read slowly. <laughs> <clears throat> Mrs. Ramsey. His death, along with the death of Prue and the death of Andrew mm-hmm. and the quote I read about Mr. Carmichael's thing selling, are all in brackets, like yeah. thrown at the end of paragraphs. Like I, I was reading and I like I was trying to like push through, mm-hmm. and then I just was kind of like reading through, and then I I, I did a double take <laughs> and reread this. Um, Mr. Ramsey, stumbling along a passage one dark morning, stretched his arms out, but Mrs. Ramsey, having died rather suddenly the night before, his arms, though stretched out, remained empty. What? 
I'm sorry. What? I li- I wrote that. You can see that. Yeah. <laughs> what? And then what? Two pages later? Three, one, two, three, four pages later. <clears throat> also in uh, brackets at the end. It's small little paragraph between others. Two others. Prue Ramsey died that summer in some illness connected with childbirth, which was indeed a tragedy, people said. Everything, they said, had promised so well. Page 133, the next page. In brackets. A shell exploded. 20 or 30 young men were blown up in France, among them Andrew Ramsey, whose death, mercifully, was instantaneous. Yeah. Why you gotta do me like this, Virginia Woolf? This to me, it was when I hit this pit, I was like, oh, like this, this yeah. gave more meaning to the book for me. Um, because then the rest of the book is, at least for, there's a little bit that talks about, tiny bit, I think that talks about Prue, a little bit that talks about Andrew, but the mm-hmm. rest is like people dealing with the grief of losing Mrs. Ramsey. Yeah. And like, you have to put together the pieces of how she died. And I have a question for you. Um. Because I am legitimately wondering, Hunter, um, mm. and I, cause I can't believe this is the case. I was reading, it happens pages upon pages after we learned that Mrs. Ramsey's dead, which is why. Page 186. You go there with me? Mm-hmm. It's in the last paragraph. Most of the way down. Um, this is for, um, I think it's James's perspective. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What are we dawdling about here for, eh? As once before, he had brought his blade down among them on the terrace. This is James being really mad at his dad and like, yeah. always wanted to stab him. Um, as once before, he, James, had brought his blade down among them, his parents, on the terrace, and she, his mom, had gone stiff all over. And if there had been an axe handy, a knife, or anything with a sharp point, he would have seized it and struck his father through the heart. She had gone stiff all over, and then her arm slackening, so that he felt she listened to him no longer. She had risen somehow and gone away and left him there, him there impotent, ridiculous, sitting on the floor, grasping a pair of scissors. Did he kill his mom? No. <sighs> no. No, I read that as um, a metaphor for the way that uh, Mr. Ramsey demands things of his family. Um, like, in the beginning, James is is sitting there as a boy with his mother. And then Mr. Ramsey comes in and says, doesn't look like we're going to go to the lighthouse today. Uh, and he does it in like a very kind of gruff manner, almost with glee. Uh, and, and James feels that that is what I read as the axe coming down. Um, and, you know, previously the, this idea of, uh, you know, stabbing his, his father, striking him in the heart um, is used as a metaphor to, to, show James's reaction to his father and their kind of strained relationship. Um, and that, that's how I read it. Um, okay. And I think that's probably the right 
interpretation. <sighs> but uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the things I love about Virginia. She, she's, um, she keeps you on your toes. Uh, she, she uses, she uses extreme language so effectively in my opinion, because she, oh, yeah. she doesn't just like overwhelm you with it. She like drops it at the right moment. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think if she just, if she didn't have as precise timing as she did, um, it would read kind of melodramatically and, and not. Hunter, I could never write anything like the quality to which she writes. I shared at the beginning of this podcast that I knew from the beginning that I was reading an incredible work of literature. And it wasn't until this paragraph, which is the third full paragraph on page 151, until around here that I was able to like, I think peg like one of the reasons, one of the major reasons why it was so incredible. Hmm. Um, Cause I feel like this paragraph uh, is one of the f- one is one that just brings things together, and it's not so much what this paragraph is about, even though that's incredible. This is about Mr. Tansy, uh, Mr. Ramsey, um, putting the pressure on Lily Briscoe without them even saying like the internal pressure to be sim- like show him sympathy before the, um, the yeah. beauty about the boots, um, the uh, what what type of boots? The blessed what, island of good boots. Yes, they don't like they don't make boots like those. I was very interested to see those boots. Yeah, I um, want a pair. Me too. Um, but here we go. This is, I'll, I'm going to read the, the the paragraph and then I'll share why I think it's so insane. Mr. Ramsey sighed to the full. He waited. Was she not going to say anything? Did she not see what he wanted from her? Then he said he had a particular reason for wanting to go to the lighthouse. His wife used to send the men things. There was a poor boy with a tuberculosis hip, the lightkeeper's son. He sighed profoundly. He sighed significantly. All Lily wished was that this enormous flood of grief, this insatiable hunger for sympathy, this demand that she should surrender herself up to him entirely, and even so, he had sorrows enough to keep her supplied forever, should leave her, should be diverted. She kept looking at the house, hoping for an interruption before it swept her down in its flow. What I could point out was the beautiful connection to the lighthouse and to the time where um, Mrs. Ramsey knitting the stocking legs has James show out his leg and that whole ordeal where he's internally thinking about, you know, not doing it and she, you know, plays along with it and then Mm -hmm. makes a different statement. He's like, Oh, I need to do this. It you know ties back to so many things and the, the internal viewpoint of Mr. Ramsey thinking about the lighthouse and how that will, you know, help sanctify a, a moment uh, that he's held on to for a, a decade that has been had hurt him and yeah. the moment that Mrs. Ramsey knew from the beginning would hurt James and stick with him forever and all these other things which is happening in this paragraph, right. um, let alone the internal pressure. But no, that's not what I wanted to focus on. <laughs> what I wanted to focus on is that in this one paragraph, without any moments of actual verbal dialogue, we receive the viewpoints of not one, but 
two characters flowing perfectly together such that if you don't even think about it, you could miss it. Because mm. it starts with Mr. Ramsey's views. He sighed profoundly, you know, this part of the way through. He sighed profoundly. He sighed significantly. All Lily wished was that this enormous flood of grief, this insatiable hunger for sympathy, continues on. And then all of a sudden we get Lily's view mm. without a pause. I could not write this paragraph. <laughs> I, I was, I've been thinking about this particular paragraph and like whether or not I could ever create anything, maybe at some point in my life, not anywhere near now. But her ability to, um, sorry, that's one of my son's toys, uh, but Virginia Woolf's ability to tie together these absolutely contrasting viewpoints and this internal monologues into a dialogue between two characters that aren't speaking together within the con. Con, confines, con, confines, confines of one ten-sentence paragraph, and this isn't the only paragraph where she does that, and it probably isn't even the first one, but it's the first time that I was able to notice, like, w- what she was doing, yeah, and just be like, oh, this is one of those things that I I've experienced in her writing already, but I didn't, I couldn't put a word to it. Yeah. I don't know. But what does that stick out to you? What do you, have you, did you notice that? It's what do you think? When I read Virginia Woolf, I swoon (laughs) because she, there, we live in a, in a, in a world where people are constantly, making hyperboles and they are very generous with the word masterpiece. But this is a masterpiece and she is a master wordsmith of the English language and a master storyteller um, mm-hmm. in, in her particular style. And it, it is, that's why that's what I tried and trying to say when I mean that she's a great inspiration to me because I, I I read Virginia Woolf to try and to try and learn how to write uh, and how to how to achieve something mm. beyond just uh, using a book as a vehicle as a, for for a plot characters to get a screenplay. Um, yeah, and. <clears throat> It's, uh, this would be a very quiet movie. Oh yeah, they, oh there was this awful movie. I shouldn't call it awful, but I watched it a long time. I don't remember it. It's based on uh, the the hours, which which was based on Mrs. Dalloway, um, which is one of her other famous ones books. I hated the movie. Like, why would you want to turn this into a movie? Like, this this is like prose and fiction. Like, I, I, almost perfected. Like, like, not this book yeah, made me want to go to a, like, buy a cottage and live there over the summers without any technology. <laughs> yeah, and like have a library where I sat and read and then paced around the grounds outside, back mm. and forth, back yeah. and forth, back and forth. 
uh, for, like, I, that's like, no, I'd like to it, share, it, it, sorry. <clears throat> I'd like to share a quote from Virginia Woolf, um, about reading, uh, uh, great, great authors. She says, it is by reason of this masterliness of theirs, this uncompromising idiosyncrasy, that great writers often require us to make heroic efforts in order to read them rightly. They bend us and break us. To go from Jane Austen to Hardy, from Peacock to Trollope, from Scott to Meredith, from Richardson to Kipling, is to be wrenched and distorted, thrown this way and then that. For these difficult and inaccessible books, with all their preliminary harshness, often yield the richest fruits in the end, and so curiously is the brain compounded that while tracts of literature repel at one season, they are appetizing and essential at another. I'm nodding. That's all you can do. It's just... this this, our conversations hunter with the books we read um specifically the ones that you recommend uh make me wonder uh if we've progressed or regressed Mm. uh in terms of it, as a society at times. And then I think about like you know, slavery and things like that. And I'm like, well, we've progressed. <laughs> um, and then I, yeah, but in terms of literature, hmm. um, and I, I think there's incredible things being written today that are so much fun to read. And like, I love reading Brandon Sanderson and I love wheel of time. I, I love them. Um, and I've talked about them for hours upon hours upon hours. <laughs> Specifically Wheel of Time. And, and there are, in the course of the 14 books of the Wheel of Time, a few moments, one in particular, that strike me. Hmm in their their visual in the visuals in the climactic aspect of it in the internal dialogue in the pain and the everything that's going around it that I think do compare to these moments but it's 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 closer to a needle in a haystack where this is a needle in a needle sack. <laughs> if, if needles are the uh, proverbial, uh, yeah, you know, reward, yeah, um, you're gonna get poked a lot while you read this. Like, and, I, and I still hold to my view. Like I think for me, it wasn't until I was almost done with this that I was like, oh, yeah, yes. It- and, and this, and, and with a, an incredible piece of work, an incre- a masterpiece, and this I think goes with the quote you were just reading from Virginia Woolf. Talking about it will make it better. Um, I, was in, I was in a book club um, and talked about different fantasy and sci fi. 
and I one of our best convers one of our best conversations was around um, Man in the High Castle, which mm. maybe we'll talk about at some point. Um, and going into the conversation, the five or six of us in the conversation, um, we were doing ratings, which we don't do on this, but for the sake of that, I'm just sure we were probably probably averaged a three mm. out of five before the conversation. By the end of the conversation, all of us were giving it a four or a five out of five. Like <laughs> it became better when we talked about it. And that's what's happened to me with, with that's what happens with these types of works. And that's why I think we see that reflected in, in our conversations and, and some of the conversations that stick out to me the most. Yeah. Um, are the conversations where my views on the thing changed and became more complex, where you helped me realize about it, where Michael, you know, opened up Macbeth, um, yeah. Macbeth in a way that I'd never experienced it. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, you know, she says it in her essay, they, they bend us and they break us. They're inaccessible. You know, so some of the, you know, some, some are more accessible, um, but others aren't. And, and reading is a skill. It's a muscle that you have to use. And, you know, because you, you can watch a movie and you don't really have to do too much. Uh, your your brain actually does less when you're watching a movie. Um, there was a study. I, I can maybe try and find it for the show notes. But, you know, when you're reading, you don't there's no conceit about it like a movie has to has to use trickery and illusions and um acting and sound effects and production value to kind of immerse you and and i would argue that i mean my a lot of my favorite movies maybe don't have as much of that and they just use the story and the acting and the writing but um you know, you do have to suspend your disbelief, or as Tolkien once said in his, um, in one of his essays, uh, <laughs> belief is not only suspended, but hung, drawn, and quartered. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in a book, it's, it's words. So the conceit is kind of open, and you have to do all of the imagining. When you, when a writer says, a large, well-worn table in a family house. Mm. We all have our own image of what that is. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that it's more powerful than seeing a picture because you connect instantly with your own image of a large, well-worn table in a family house. And and that's just, you know, a, a maybe not the best example that I could come up with off the top of my head, but, but, but reading is, is something that you have to practice. And, and especially with a book like to the lighthouse, it requires a lot of effort, but it can reward you. And I think that's what talking about it can do. That's why we have, you know, classes. Uh, that's why colleges, um, are in the format have, have classes on literature in the format that they are. And, um, I would I would compare it to um did you 
read or watch Harry Potter first? Uh, I read through five and then I watched it. I watched Harry Potter before I read it. Um, I was very slow to the game. And so when I read Harry Potter, all I could see was Daniel Radcliffe (laughs) and the entire cast. Like I didn't have the opportunity to see, envision the world as it was written and as I experienced it. All I could do was see it as it was depicted by one group of people at one particular time. Yeah. And that's a loss. I mean, there's something that that gives you as a game, gives you maybe more of grounding and more of a way to talk about it with other people because more people have watched the thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more of a specific thing that you're talking about, maybe. Yeah. Um, but you lose something significant. Yeah. It's the difference uh, between watching someone play a game and playing the game yourself. And I would argue that that reading is even deeper than just playing a game. Um, oh, way deeper. Yeah. When you're in a book. Yeah. When you're in it. Like when, when you're in a book. When you hit the point of a book where that Lily hits while she's drawing the paint, painting for the second time. Yeah. Relive it. Um, okay. I'm going to read my quote and then you can finish this off. Okay. Or do you still have two more quotes? Well, I got, I got one quote. Um, I want to say, I really appreciated the use of the word booby. In this, uh, <laughs> yeah. Book. Uh, yes. It has to do with, uh, Charles Tansley. Dumb, yeah. Um, uh, also just a really fun, uh, <laughs> there was a moment about dissing Shakespeare in this book that I thought was hilarious. Oh. It was approximately four, three sentences, four sentences, page 107. Then Minta Doyle, whose instinct was fine, said bluffly, abs- absurdly, that she did not believe that anyone really enjoyed reading Shakespeare. <laughs> Mr. Ramsay said grimsly, grimly, but his mind was turned away again, that very few people liked it as much as they said they did. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I would recommend, uh, if you want to know what Virginia Woolf herself thought about Shakespeare um, reading a essay called a room of one's own in which uh, the, the question that was put to her for this essay was what does a woman need to be a writer? And her answer was a room of one's own. Uh, and she talks about Shakespeare as like someone whose poetry is pure, uh, free of bitterness um, but yeah, like she, she's, she's, she's funny. She's, she's sarcastic. Um, you know, it's, it's not all heavy and difficult, but, but if you're reading, now, if you're not taking time to read it, um, you miss it. Um, also I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to read it, but one ten to one eleven, uh, the poem of Loriana Laurely. Is that a real poem? Probably. Because um, it's just, I loved it. It. It's not that long. I love, no. I would just read the po- poetic pieces. Can I do that? Yeah. Come out and climb the garden path, Loriana, Laurely, 
The china rose is all abloom and buzzing with the yellow bee. I wonder if it seems to you, Loriana, Lorely, to see the kings go riding by over lawn and daisy lee with their palm leaves and cedar sheaves, Loriana, Lorely, Loriana, Lorely. Come on. Hmm. Somebody going to tell me that that poetry is not good? Yeah. No, it's, ah. it's, it's just beautiful language. Uh, just. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, you've got two more quotes. You share one, and then I'll share one. And okay. Then share one, <laughs> and then we'll be done. What is the meaning of life? That was all a simple question, <laughs> one that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. Who said that one? I forgot who said the line. Uh, it's from Lily Okay, towards the end. Do you want to follow that up with anything? Or do you want uh, this code to just hold this, back? This is, Virginia Woolf was a great observer of the little daily miracles. And, um, I talk a little more about it, my essay, uh, but, I suppose we should mention, we should, <laughs> Virginia Woolf, ultim uh, sh she took her own life. Um, mm, I did not know that. And she suffered from manic depression. There is evidence that she probably suffered from um, sexual abuse when she was younger. Mm. And I don't want to glorify the tortured artist her art is what it is not because of her struggles but in spite of them and i think that we we tend to we definitely romanticize the tortured artist the the hemingways and the um van goghs um and you could put virginia wolf there and and you know, reading it, knowing that she eventually took her life, you might think that it would be depressing and, you know, bring you down. But no one really knows what was going through her mind. I mean, she she suffered from like manic depression and, and they didn't have a really great understanding of mental health at the time. So, but if you just read her art, and you read her work for what it is, you will find, and I have found, that she was a great observer of daily miracles, of little illuminations, of matches mm. struck in the dark. And those, more than anything for me, are, you know, the, the physical manifestations of hope and truth and goodness in this world that I can really 
point to. You know, there are there are the big ones. The the um, um, as you shared at the beginning, the uh, Lamar Hamlin. Did I say Jamar his name? Hamlin. Jamar, Jamar Hamlin. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot more evidence beyond just you know the big stories that we hear. And, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, it's not to diminish that, but Virginia Woolf has helped me see those, those little miracles and become a better observer of those. How about the moment where the Mr. Ramsey responds with, ah, instead of, or, uh, or the moment where he celebrates James, like yeah. both in the, in that boat ride to yeah. the lighthouse, like those are those are definitely little miracles. Yeah, for sure. Ah, and like Mr. Ram, I, I sorry, you were I interrupted again. No, you, you can keep going. Um, <laughs> you were you were you were reading. Well, you were reading that piece. I was thinking about the. the there's a point earlier on in this story. It's one of the, I think the first times you kind of really dive into Mr. Ramsey, where he's thinking he's on a walk by himself, and he's gotten to pee. Hmm the letter P and he's thinking about how does he get to the letter Q? Yeah. Um, and his, his mindset is that, um, and he brings it up later, um, that if, if thinking is linear, then it moves from A to Z. And he's like, he's not sure if it actually is. Um, and he spends his whole time thinking about how do I get, ah, here we are. He starts at Q. He's trying to get to R. Yeah. Uh, page 34. 33 and 34. They needed his protection. He gave it to them. But after Q, what comes next? After Q, there are a number of letters, the last of which is scarcely visible to mortal eyes. But glimmer, glimmers red in the distance. Z is only reached once by one man in a generation. Still, if he could reach R, it would be something. Here, at least, was Q. He dug his heels in at Q. Q, he was sure of. Q, he could demonstrate. If Q, then is QR. Here, he knocked his pipe out with two or three resonant taps on the handle of the urn and proceeded. Then R. He braced himself. He clenched himself. It continues on later towards the end of the page. He had not genius. He laid no claim to that. But he had, or might have had, the power to repeat every letter of the alphabet from A to Z accurately in order. Meanwhile, he stuck at Q. On then to R. And then he spends time thinking about his family. And I can't remember if it's, if it's immediately or if it's later on. And he thinks about his life. I think it's much later on. And he, I think he gets to this idea that he doesn't need to go on. He loves his family and he's not at a loss for getting to R. And then he, towards the end brings up A to Z again. It's just, 
that that came into my mind. I feel like that might have been his way of thinking through what Lily was thinking through. Yeah. And that matches with um you know what what Lily says about the end. It would be hung in attics. It would be destroyed. But what did that matter? Mm-hmm. Okay, here's the quote I wanted to share. Um <laughs> Uh, page 138 and 139. Um, this is from the third section. Uh, this is actually, this is still in the time passes section. I think. Um, in this time passes section, we are given the viewpoint of, um, Mrs. McNabb. No, Mrs. Best. <laughs> Mrs. McNabb. I can't remember. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I love it. I love. I I I couldn't let this episode end without talking a little bit about her viewpoint, mm. um, because it's her. She's the the caretaker of the cottage. Yeah. Um, especially when the family's gone, and so they send her money once a year or once a month, and she goes and cleans it up. And over the course of the war, which I'm pretty sure is World War One. Mm-hmm. Um. 10 years pass without the family arriving and they send her money every so often. And she knows that they expect it to be in good working order, but there's this point where it started to fall apart and like majorly fall apart um, because nobody's lived there mm-hmm. um, because people left their things there because, you know, she can't do everything. She's one person. Yeah. And at the page 138, it says, For now had come that moment, that hesitation when dawn trembles and night pauses, when, if a feather alight in the scale, it will be weighed down. One feather and the house, sinking, falling, would have turned and pitched downwards to the depths of darkness. In the ruined room, picnickers would have lit their kettles. Lovers sought shelter there, lying on the bare boards. And the shepherd stored his dinner on the bricks, and the tramp slept with his coat round him to ward off the cold. Then the roof would have fallen. Briars and hemlocks would have blotted out path, step, and window. Would have grown uniquely, unequally, but lustily over the mound. Until some trespasser losing his way could have told one by a red-hot poker among the nettles, or a scrap of china in the hemlock, that here once some one had lived, there had been a house. If the feather had fallen, if it had tipped the scale downwards, the whole house would have plunged to the depths to lie upon the sands of oblivion. But there was a force working, something not highly conscious, something that leered, something that lurched, something not inspired to go about its work with dignified ritual or solemn chanting. Mrs. McNabb groaned. Mrs. Best creaked. And it continues on. It continues on. And I just found it such a beautiful moment. Um, and I love old houses. I love working on and And I, I, I hope to do that throughout the rest of my life. And I have an old house, um, uh, an old house that was around when this book was written, um, not too much before, from 1920. 
uh, <laughs> this idea of a feather falling, right? We think about a feather falling and tipping the scales in a cartoon and all of a sudden everything getting destroyed. Um, like what a beautiful way and intricate way and descriptive and understandable and Hmm. course six of the seven course meal, you know, or course six of the nine course meal. Yeah. Um, You know, where you have this character that is kind of in the book is not, not the book beforehand even though we don't have her viewpoint beforehand, but she's like, you'll learn retroactively. She was there. Mm. Like whose viewpoint, like who is not intelligent. Who's not poetic. Who's <laughs> not, you know, any of the things that Mrs. Ramsey is. Yeah. And she, along with the help of a few other people, like bring life to, to this death. And I mean, that's also has to be speaking about the war, yeah, and the war being over, and and it is they 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 you know they're those passages are brought in among it. It it that's a I don't know, for that's a passage that makes me feel warm, yeah. Um, even as you know, it's about to get sad. Mm-hmm. Because you know the family is coming back, and this is where you learn it's about ten years later, like without Mrs. Ramsey, without Andrew, yeah, without Prue. You learn without Paul and Minta because they got some weird going on in their marriage. <laughs> um, yeah, and yet this this moment like enables that to happen. Mm-hmm. It, it, it that just happens constantly throughout the book. It's just all these different moments and uh, phrases that speak to you, and it's so rereadable. Like I could read this again right now and get different things from it. If you're ever in college and or in a class and you're reading this book and you didn't have time to finish it before the class, you could just bring up a random page and a random paragraph. Yeah, and expound on that, and it'll. I mean, because there's not a dud. <laughs> it's not like waiting for the you know, waiting through the things for the good stuff. Yeah, it's like waiting through the good stuff, but like if you don't put in the effort, you won't get anything. Mm. If you want a book that'll give you something without you having to do that much work, this is not the book. Yeah. No, it's not. Um, and as as we come to the end, I just want to thank you for for reading it uh, the whole way for making it through. I know it's not it's not easy. I always, um, you know, I love Virginia Woolf so much that I want to share them with people, but I know that it's hard reading, and and I feel like uh, it's not very popular now to read hard things. Uh, it's it's hard to convince people, but I I just want to thank you for reading it and um, you know, uh, bearing with my my enthusiasm for <laughs> for Virginia Woolf. Um, well, I and, loved reading it. I thank you for bringing it to us. Well, for example, I loved it once I had read it, and we <laughs> talked about it. 
Yeah. And so I will end with this final quote. This is on page 171. And it is about the nature of, of art. Is it a boat? Is it a cork? Mrs. Ramsey would say. And Lily repeated, turning back reluctantly again to her canvas. Heaven be praised for it. The problem of space remained, she thought, taking up her brush again. It glared at her. The whole mass of the picture was poised upon that weight. Beautiful and bright it should be on the surface, feathery and evanescent, one color melting into another like the colors on a butterfly's wing. But beneath the fabric must be clamped together with bolts of iron. It was to be a thing you could ruffle with your breath and a thing you could not dislodge with a team of horses. <laughs>